Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and I've got with me in the studio Ashley Wakefield. Hello. Hey, Ashley. How you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing all right. How was your Thanksgiving? It was great. Had a lot of great food, ate too much, um, had a great time with my family, and can't wait to do it again in Christmas. So. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I had a similar uh, Thanksgiving. I got to make like my own like turkey broth after cooking a oh. turkey, and yeah, that turkey broth uh, ended up becoming a gravy that I made. Oh, it turned out so good, and I used the broth and like a stuffing Uh. it it, it was amazing it was amazing so i hope everyone out there in the podcast world had a really good thanksgiving and uh, um, i'm excited to get back into isaiah this week Um, we're going to be going through uh, another three chapters before we hit the christmas break and then we will have another two week break for that christmas week and then we'll be back to our normal schedule so we're trucking our way through and i'm really excited we've already hit 21 chapters in isaiah this has been great I'm excited, and um, we're basically almost a third of the way through this book. So congrats on you guys for making it this far, especially through this section where we've been going through a lot of the different uh, uh nations around Israel and this has been more of a historical lesson than anything um, but yeah I, I, con- I just wanted to wish you all congratulations on this and we're actually nearing the end of sort of prophecies against the nations we're going to get sort of the next five chapters I think um, are going to be very uh global focused more so and we're going to get um, way less of a focus on individual nations and more of a focus on um just how the world itself is going to respond to all this upending and upheaval that we're getting prophesied in these uh, chapters. So I'm re- really excited for this section. Um, it's going to be a little bit more poetic also, um, and that's going to be really fun to talk about. There's a lot of themes in these next co- upcoming chapters that are going to be really fun, but we're not there yet. We are in another chapter on Babylon, and if you've been remembering way back, um, I guess now this would be math is hard, uh, seven chapters ago, um, we did two chapters on Babylon already, and this is another chapter on Babylon that's coming at chapter 21. Um, Chapters 13 and 14 start our whole Oracles of the Nations section with Babylon, and uh, here at chapter 22, we are now on a section of Babylon again, and this is typical of Hebrew poetry in general uh, in the Bible, is they'll have this structure where they'll start with um, particular nations, and then work their way through a middle section that's usually different, and then they'll end with that same nation that they started with. Um, so to use poetic language, they start with an A section. In this case, it's Babylon. And then they'll move to a B section, which is every other nation. And then they'll go back to the A section and do another Babylon um, 
chapter essentially and so that's what we're seeing here is we're seeing sort of the end of this oracles against the nation the next chapter will be on jerusalem which is also something that gets focused on in the beginning right before babylon and so these are kind of the what i call the sandwich end method of writing where we have uh, a sandwich piece of bread and then there's the meat in the middle and then another piece of bread that's the same as the beginning so uh, that's what we're about to jump into uh, ashley what were your thoughts with uh, just overall uh, on this chapter before before we dive in. Um, I found a lot of cross-references um, to certain things like the book of Daniel, the book of Deuteronomy, um, things like that. Um, I also like the imagery of like the, the day and the night, which I'm also interested in getting into and what that means for the nations, um, uh, more than one of the nations mentioned, um, and what the day means for one nation, what the night means for another nation, and that kind of stuff. So um, I found it really, really interesting. It was really, really good. And I know that we got in conversation about um, the Medes and the, the Persians, and is it referring to them um them striking um babylons is it them striking the babylons or like the babylons um or the assyrians coming against babylon right, right. i think it was yeah and so like that that you know whole debate in that conversation so it's a lot of things to, to talk about to bring up so i'm excited to get into it yeah so. yeah it's gonna be great it's gonna be great all right guys you ready uh sit back get your cup of coffee or tea and uh, we're gonna read through this chapter a prophecy against the desert by the sea, like whirlwinds sweeping through the Southland, an invader comes from the desert, from a land of terror. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. Elam will attack, Media lay siege. I will bring to an end all the groaning she caused. At this my body is racked with pain. Pangs seize me like those of a woman in labor. I am staggered by what I hear. I am bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me. They set the tables. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Get up, you officers. Oil the shields. This is what the Lord says to me. Go post a lookout and have him report what he sees. When he sees chariots with teams of horses, riders on donkeys, or riders on camels, let him be alert, fully alert. And the lookout shouted, Day after day, my lord, I stand on the watchtower. Every night I stand at my post. Look here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses, and he gives back the answer, Babylon has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. My people who are crushed on the threshing floor, I tell you what I have heard from the Lord Almighty, from the God of Israel. A prophecy against Duma. Someone calls to me from Seir. Watchman, what is left of the night? Watchman, what is left of the night? The watchman replies, morning is coming but also the night. If you would ask, then ask, and come back yet again. A prophecy against Arabia. You caravans of Dedanites who camp in the thickets of Arabia, bring water for the thirsty. You who live in Temon, bring food for the fugitives. They flee from the sword, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the heat of battle. This is what the Lord says to me. Within one year, 
as a servant bound by contract would count it, all the splendor of Kadar will come to an end. The survivors of the archers, the warriors of Kadar, will be few. The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. All right, so this is a longer chapter that we're doing right now. Um, one of the first things you've probably noticed with this chapter is that um, we are back to a more grim uh, tale of what's to come, uh, specifically for Babylon. And uh, there's a lot of military language in this chapter, specifically with shields having to be oiled, um, with uh, what you see is like being uh, all these different nations being attacked and watchmen. Um, this is very military focused. And so we've kind of moved away from the Egypt and uh, Kush uh, kind of uh, imagery of like economics and like farmers and now we're in this far more military sort of poetic mindset which is very true of how um, the Babylonians operated they were very military in sort of everything that they do and I think I made this point a couple of chapters ago but generally god likes to hit a nation in what they're best at mm -hmm. um and so there's a lot of focus on a lot of this type of military imagery because he's focusing on what they're best at and there's going to be different nations um, one of the things that ashley mentioned at the start of this is that there is a bit of a debate here about how this whole chapter falls into the history of the uh, overall what ended up happening in Babylon. Um, we do know that the Assyrians at one point did conquer Babylon. Um, and by conquer, I don't mean completely overtake and just completely demolished. I mean, uh, they conquered but left the city to be itself and basically made the city pay a tribute um, for a bit. And so we do know that happened. Um, but part of the thing about this chapter is in verse 2 in particular it mentions Elam and Media laying siege to Babylon not Assyria and so uh, a big debate has been well we know that Assyria is the one that attacked Babylon at one point and as a result of that attack Babylon was far weaker um, and uh, they because Babylon was a lot weaker Assyria was able to conquer a lot of the southern Negev um, which includes a lot of the area that the um, that Kadar and Duma were in so it makes more sense that it was Assyria that attacked Babylon and then was able to make a conquest into the south uh, with Duma and um, uh, the uh, Kadar uh, Kedarites I think is how you call them and yet at the same time we also have uh, media here which would indicate a later time that Babylon was conquered and so there's a huge debate among commentaries about this Ashley did you have anything you wanted to kind of throw in your two cents on what you think is um, probably more likely on that point yeah I was a little confused about that too um, I was looking at a map of the Assyrian conquest and I know that Adad Narari hopefully I'm pronouncing that right is so it was Adad Narari the third it actually went down to the Negev and Edom um, and conquered um, that territory. Hmm. And so I was a little confused about that and also mentioning it here with the Medes and the Persians. Now, I do know um, that Elam was originally, I think it was originally separate from Persia. And then eventually the Persians took over Elam. And then also they overthrew the Median king and that became under their territory as well. Um, I do think it's possible. I didn't think about this until now, but I do think it's possible that this, the idea of the Medes and the Persians, um, taking over Babylon may have been something um, done in the future only because of the cross-reference that I found in Daniel 5. If you look at Daniel chapter 5, it talks about 
um, how they're celebrating. And I think that was sort of referencing, if you look at verse five in this chapter, yeah. um, talking about how they're celebrating the feasting and then there's this big call to war. Um, it's kind of something similar that you read in Daniel five when it talks about um, Belshazzar, who is having this big feast, bringing out all this gold and then drinking and feasting. And then there's the hand of God that he sees that writes on the wall and he can't interpret what it says. So Daniel comes and he basically says that um, God is going to send the Persians and the Medes to destroy the Babylonian kingdom because of his lack of humbleness before um, the Lord. And so I kind of think that the Medes and the Persians taking over Babylon it's not done necessarily at this point in time, but done in the future. And it's possible that the Assyrians may be coming against them. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. I gotcha. And that's definitely one view is that this is just a future prophecy that's kind of wedged in between um, the prophecy against Duma and Arabia. Um, and that the Duma and Arabia prophecies happen way earlier in time. And then the prophecy against Babylon is a way future prophecy that comes far more later. And that's possible. Um, and I think that's. Uh, one of the hard things about uh, poetry with Isaiah in particular is that uh, the writer of Isaiah is not really interested in um, doing things chrono uh, chronologically. Um, I, I was thinking about this with a, a great example is the Marvel Cinematic Universe and uh, how these movies it come out basically every six months or so. And they're always continuing like this grand meta narrative story. But there's several movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that are basically out of order. Like specifically Black Widow is a movie that just came out recently that falls in a time period that's way earlier than several movies that have come after it and before it. And so it's not technically in chronological order. And so what Disney Plus has done is it's actually has a whole playlist for people to watch the Marvel Cinematic Universe in chronological order as opposed to the way that they were released. And I just think that that's a great example of how Westerners really like it for things to be chronological and for things to be ordered and for things to have like a time of every kind of movie comes in the right time period. And so Captain America is like the first movie because it happened in World War II. And so it's just interesting how as Westerners were so kind of driven by that kind of need to have everything time-wise fit and ordered. And I will just say up front, Isaiah doesn't care about that. That's not something he's interested in. He does not connect themes based off of time. He tends to connect things based off of theme. Um, and so that's why we're getting another chapter in Babylon at the end of this Oracles of the Nations. It's not because this happened next in a time period it's because this is uh an event that's following kind of that sandwich technique i was talking about earlier in the episode so yeah it, that's just something that's hard to get used to for us reading the bible um, but it's helpful to know because then we can stop trying to look at it as okay how does this fit in in time and we can start looking at what is as actually being said in this poetry that's relating to other chapters and other things and what's what's some of the imagery that's being drawn here so maybe that helps for you if you're still kind of lost in the weeds of it a little bit um, as we get further into uh, the chapter, um, you'll notice, of course, that it's split up into three different prophecies. Um, there's a prophecy against Babylon, and then there's a prophecy against Duma, and there's a prophecy against um, 
uh, Arabia and Kedar. Now, you might have the question, who in the world is Duma and these and the Kedarites and who, who are these people? Um, what's helpful is that there is actually a passage about Ishmael in Genesis that talks about Ishmael having sons. And in particular, several of the sons, one of their names was Duma and another one of those sons is um, uh, uh I just lost the name, Kedar. Um, and uh, did you have that reference by chance, Ashley? What's the reference for that? I think it's Genesis 25. Uh, uh, it's Genesis 37 and 25. 37 and, tw- okay, mm-hmm. 37 and 25. Yeah, because I think what it's saying there is like the idea of, because um, I think in verse 13, it talks about the caravans of the Dedanites. And I think in Genesis 37 and 25, it kind of has the same idea of like a caravan of Ishmaelites coming so it's like the idea that they're traders or they're merchants like yeah. so they run into the they run into the same career the same field in uh what they do um but yeah mm, interesting okay cool and I will say that um there is a little bit of a translation difference at the top here where it says desert um I was reading a commentary that talked about how it says an oracle against the desert by the sea. Um, a lot of translators think that the word desert here is a wrong translation, um, and it's far better to translate this as wasteland or swampland. It's sort of the wild by the sea um, is more accurate. And this is typical of the geography of this area, is basically you had this little thin little strait where Judah, Israel, uh, Moab, and Edom, and up in the north you had Syria, Damascus, Samaria, all these nations are all in, and then directly to the east of all that is just a wild wasteland, some desert, um, you have the Arabian desert, but then there's just this, just almost nothing can grow there, it's just this wild wasteland, and the more you go um, east, eventually you'll hit Babylon. And Babylon is kind of in this end of what's called the Fertile Crescent, which is this um, little crown that goes up north. Um, And all that Fertile Crescent is uh, green. And it basically is this little half circle um, that uh, sort of goes around this wild wasteland. Um, And all of that is green. You can, there's rivers um, that are around there that um, water it, the rains get there. And so that whole area, the Fertile Crescent is all nice. And Babylon's at the very end of the Eastern portion of that Fertile Crescent. And so what we're talking about here in this kind of prophecy against the desert by the sea or the wildness by the sea is this sort of lower southern region of Arabia with with the Arabian desert and then all of that kind of wildness where people don't usually inhabit and what you were saying earlier about these like traveling merchants that might travel into there um, to try and sell to these nomads and things like that so and another thing I like about that section um, referring to the whirlwinds um, that sweep through the Southland yeah um, I think something that God is really good at doing that we're not always very good at doing as Christians is making things relevant for his people to understand and so when I was looking at that it was sort of like the idea of the the whirlwinds which um, the south, the southern part there, I think some translators may say Negev instead of Southland. Yeah. And so it was like the idea that the winds down there were very, very violent, like to the point where they could rip through tents and stuff. Um, so the idea was that comparing the violent whirlwinds that people were familiar with, with this nation that was coming against 
um, Babylon to destroy them. And so it's like the idea of making things in their time period relevant so that they, so that they can understand, which is kind of a hard thing to do for us sometimes. But yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's a great point. Um, there's also um, just this imagery of the wild sort of invading the South, which is kind of, I think, what's getting at that with the whirlwinds kind of sweeping through through um you see uh what's interesting too is a lot of commentators don't think that isaiah wrote this chapter because earlier in chapters 13 and 14 he's really happy that babylon gets destroyed and has you know he's almost like yeah you deserve getting what's coming to you almost and yet in this chapter um the author of this chapter is saying my body is racked with pain like i'm almost going through like um, the pain that a woman would go through in labor. Um, and it's for Babylon, right? It's not for Judah. He's feeling these emotions for Babylon. And so a lot of commentators can't accept that it's Isaiah writing this. Um, and they think that it might be someone else, um, maybe in one of these desert nomadic a tribes that's saying this um, and that has been included in the Isaiah corpus. Um, I'll leave you up to d- debate whether or not that's the case or not. I tend to usually think of this more as Isaiah writing this. Um, but again, that's open to debate and you know, y'all can hash that out uh, at your own time and in your own Bible studies. <laughs> that's um, what Christmas dinners are for. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. But I did want to point it out is that uh, it does, it is a shark difference in terms of, the emotional um, investment that this prophet has for this area. And that's kind of the overarching theme of this entire section um, in the poetry is that this is an event that's going to happen to Babylon that's going to really affect a lot of different people. And if you take the view historically that um, it's Assyria that's taking down Babylon, this would be a huge event because it would affect basically all of these people in the South um, a lot of the South were using Babylon as sort of a shield for from Assyria, and Babylon was going to take care of them. You'll see this in a couple chapters later, where Hezekiah tries to form an alliance with Babylon so that um, Assyria basically won't take him out uh, again in the future. Um, and he's very much relying on Babylon to sort of be his savior. This theme gets taken up in Jeremiah a lot. Uh, Jeremiah's main criticism of the people of Jerusalem is don't trust Babylon. Um, and so there is a lot of, uh, just tie-ins with different books of the Bible where that's, um, the case. Actually, you had a point to make on Jeremiah, I thought, right? Um, a connection that you had with, was yes. it the night or what? Um, yes. Yeah, so I think it had to do with Babylon, um, being treated as a threshing floor. I think that happened in verse 10. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in verse 10, it says my people who are crushed on the threshing floor. And then if you look at Jeremiah 51 and 33, it also refers to Babylon being trampled on as a threshing floor. So I just like using those cross references so as it gives evidence and like truth to what you're reading across the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's totally, I, I totally respect that. And I think we should probably do that a little bit more yeah. here. Uh, we tend to, we tend to, I, I do take the view that um, you can glean a lot just from looking at the 
specific passage in general, um, but it is helpful from time to time to sort of pull out and so look at sort of a macro view of different books and how they're interplaying with one another. But I know that that gets really crazy really quickly, and so I don't want to overwhelm everybody really at the front end, and I want to stick with a lot of the stuff in each individual chapter. And then every now and then we'll, we'll throw in a couple of references to other books and show how this is working out or whatever. But I know there's enough history in these books that sometimes it can just make your eyes glaze over. So I try and keep it con contained in this book as much as possible. But um, so from onward, we end up uh, in the second prophecy, which is the prophecy against Duma. Um, and oh, before I jump there, though, I know you had a point about Twilight, too, and like the night or whatever. Was there anything? Yeah, you wanted I think that was um, in verse 12 where it talks about the morning comes and also the night. So when I was studying that. Um, I know a lot of commentators felt like the morning represented deliverance from the Edomites for the Jews. So the morning was referring to the Jews. So morning was coming for the Jews and then the night referring to the punishment and vengeance that God takes against Edom. So it's like the oh. idea that like night, that morning is meant for one nation and then night is meant for another talking about joy and then joy versus terror. Um, between the two nations, so interesting. So you the the night the night is almost like destruction in that sense, mm -hmm. and then the day sort of represents peace and serenity. Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, I've never thought about that before, but that's a really that's a really cool image to kind of keep in your mind. Is that when you see day and night kind of referenced in these poetic passages, kind of keep that idea of day being a kind of good thought, and then night being sort of this more scary, dark, foreboding kind of thought. So that definitely makes a lot of sense to me. And what you'll see here in the second prophecy against Duma, this is kind of where we're referencing in verse. Uh, uh, 12 and 11 and all of that kind of thing. It's very short and it seems like the most odd to me of the three, honestly, because there's no like, per, like other than like the night being bad. Um, there's not really any type of like military that's going to strike them or anything. It's just a watchman um, uh, being I, probably on a wall somewhere and someone calls to him underneath in the city asking how much of the night is left and I love the poetic just kind of vividness of this I can just see it in my mind there's this watchman that's like in the dead of night watching to see if there's any like enemy coming to attack the city and there's just this like lone person that's awake at 4 a.m. that's kind of walking and sees the watchman and asks him what is left of the night and you'll notice that the phrase is repeated twice and anytime in Hebrew that a phrase is repeated twice it's not like English where we just kind of see it as redundant and pointless in uh, Hebrew when you repeat a phrase it means pay attention to this this is really important um, and so it's, there's this almost emphasis on watchmen what is left of the night um, and the watchman's reply I think is just so beautiful and vivid um, uh, he's saying morning is coming you know there will be a moment of peace and serenity but also the night is coming as well. And so I think you could almost sum up the entire book of Isaiah. Every prophecy that uh, God is saying to every nation is basically this line. Morning is coming, but also night. Um, it's the watchman saying, you'll have to come back again to see if it's going to be morning yet. You know, Because from their perspective, they can't see because the sun will basically break over the horizon and the first person that's going to see whether or not the sun is rising is a person on a watchman uh, wall, right? They're not going to be able to see in a city. And so um, they're going to always ask the watchman, is morning coming? Um, and so 
basically the watchman is saying in response, if you ask again, basically, then ask and come back yet again. Um, and so I love it because I think the deeper meaning there is, again, something that's brought up in a lot of passages in Isaiah, whereas if you're looking for hope, right, because morning's kind of basically hope, if you're looking for hope um, and I tell you it's still night, come back again and ask for hope again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of what's going on here. Um, but at the same time, I think there is this kind of foreboding because Babylon's just been, you know, destroyed by the Medes. And so there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope. And that's why there is night, you know. And so I think it's that dual kind of reality that they're kind of existing in. So I, I honestly think it's one of the more beautiful prophecies, as short as it is. Sometimes the shorter ones have the most meaning to them. And that is kind of a theme with um, poetry in general, is that poetry is trying to say a lot with very little. Um, and you have to be really careful and pay attention to that very little, short little replies and verses to really catch the depth of meaning. And that's what I love about poetry. It's just, you know, you, you can tell I'm an English nerd here, so yeah, I'm not going to shy away from that. <laughs> but, yeah, all right, so we have the final section here before we'll wrap up, which is the prophecy against Arabia and the Dedanites, which are also a... Um, uh, son of Ishmael and their caravans and stuff. And you will notice in verse 16, um, this is kind of typical of Isaiah uh, in general, as it breaks from the poem structure and we go back to prose. And so it's usually the prose sections where it's just this kind of long form description of what's going to happen are sort of there to help you kind of make your way through the poetry because poetry can be vague. And I think that these are like little descriptive hints of what is going to happen. So, uh, I think that uh, that's really just a great place to end it on. So thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And uh, we will be back in your feed next week to tackle chapter 22, where we're finally returning to Jerusalem and what God thinks about Jerusalem. Thank you so much, guys. Yay.